on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. I'm Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg, and not everything I say on a podcast or, I don't know, on my Twitter feed, <clears throat> maybe on television sometimes. Look, it doesn't necessarily represent the views of my employer. You should hear what she says off air. It's amazing. <laughs> Sally, how are you going? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm I'm really great. The, the last few pods, we've talked about... Uh, a, a sort of burning rage within me around the sort of multi-layers of sexism and misogyny from the top to the bottom of the country, the top being hierarchical, the queen, no, being the parliament um, and sort of all the stories that have been unfolding recently. But I'm feeling good about things at the moment because I really feel like the reaction to allegations against Christian Porter to the horrific alleged rape of Brittany Higgins and behaviour by LNP MP Andrew Lamming and the initial reaction of shock and anger and horror isn't just a reaction. Like I'm feeling buoyed because it really feels like women across Australia and the people who love them are maintaining their rage and that we are getting organised and, and things are happening. And so I feel really good about that. I feel like this isn't going to be a, a reactionary backlash that disappears. So. Going to talk about that in an interview I did a little later on with Derek Linsell from Apricot Consulting. He's a renowned organisational health expert in terms of changing cultures, dealing with bad cultures within organisations, whether they're businesses or sporting organisations. So I had a good chat with him about changing cultures and changing mindsets, which is going to be key to actually seeing through what you just talked about there, that this isn't just a new cycle that passes mm. and we go on to the next crisis, but there's real change that actually happens. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Conversation. Another one we're going to talk about is also what's happening at Amazon. Have you been following this story in the States about Amazon and the fact that workers there are finally had enough and are, are pushing back against the global behemoth that is the online retail giant? And are considering forming a union, which I just think is so cool and amazing and courageous. Like it's just, it's straight up courageous for people who are working a job that is by all reports like backbreakingly difficult and stressful and punitive to then on top of all of that decide that they want to organize with each other uh, yeah it's really cool and I'm really looking forward to chatting to Jessa Crisp who is a journalist from the US about that story let's do that right now this is on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Now, Sally, at the moment in the States, there's a fascinating uh, situation unfolding at a, and I use this phrase with um, the taste of bitterness in my mouth because it's one of those horribly twisted phrases that uh, is used by corporates to make things sound a lot better than they are. A fulfillment centre, mm -hmm. a fulfillment centre in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. A fulfillment centre, for those that don't know, is basically a uh, battery hen delivery farm that Amazon runs uh, that uh, delivers all the packages you pay for around the world. And the workers there have decided or are deciding as we speak, I think the votes are being counted as we speak, whether they're going to use the U word and unionise. <laughs> it's a really significant thing that's happening out in this warehouse because even though it's just this one warehouse, 
uh, it has implications for how workers, not only in Amazon, but in similar casualized, scalable tech companies could organise in the future. And so the world is really watching these workers and whether they are going to decide to unionise and become stronger together and, and really push back some of the terrible working conditions that have been exposed from Amazon warehouses. Jessica Crispin is a journalist in the United States. She's in Baltimore at the moment, and she's been writing about this story for The Guardian and for others and uh, hitting the nail very much on the head, so much so that uh, the friends at uh, Amazon News had a crack back at her on the socials. They've got a bit uh, narky <laughs> in recent times, and uh, she obviously got right under their skin because they had a, a bit of a bitchy session back. She joins us here on The Job. G'day, Jessica. How are you going? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Yeah, that must have been a bit weird because Amazon likes to present itself as this, you know, this ocean of uh, consumer serenity. You can get whatever you want, whenever you want, and that there's, you know, even their logo is this weird ass smiley thing. But suddenly, in the last little while, they've started to go a little bit Trump esque on their socials because obviously they're feeling a bit of heat about the stories you've been writing about their work practices and the fact that these workers are considering becoming union members. Yeah, apparently an engineer who works within Amazon thought that the Twitter account must have been hacked by some sort of outside force to make Amazon look bad because the tweets were getting so aggressive. So somebody filed (laughs) a request for information of like, do we know if our password has been hijacked? Of course, it wasn't just me. It was also uh, Senator Warren, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. They were really lashing out for several days. It was very funny. I mean, you know you're doing something right if the, you know, the decision maker, I'm doing my air quotes here, but like the decision makers of your campaign or your organising push, if they are fighting back and lashing out, you know, you know you're doing something right. (laughs) Yeah, obviously it's not the first time that Amazon has been quite aggressive toward its critics. But it really did seem to want to go on some sort of self-destructive spree because, of course, it had the opposite effect of what it wanted. It was making these claims about their working conditions and immediately several publications published pieces to disprove everything that they were saying. So if anything, they just sort of increased the negative attention that they were already receiving. For a moment there, I thought that Donald uh, Trump Jr. had a new job, like that he had, was at a loose end, so he just taken on the role of being chief troll at Amazon the way they were behaving. What was the story that you wrote that really got under their skin? I think it had something to do with toilet breaks. Right, yeah. Well, that's always been one of the uh, recurring stories about Amazon employees is that they are not given enough break time to use the restroom. So this is something that exists both within the with the warehouse workers and with their delivery drivers. With the warehouse workers, the bathrooms are so far away in distance from where people are working that they can't get there and back in the span of time of 15 minutes. And with the drivers, it is often that they are given so many packages to deliver in such a short amount of time that they can't stop for bathroom breaks. And so what you get is people peeing in plastic bottles or dehydrating themselves, essentially, throughout the workday in order to not need to go to the bathroom. And there are, of course, terrible health effects of this. But this story has been in rotation for a long time because it's been a recurring problem that Amazon refuses to solve. 
and they deny that it's a problem instead. <laughs> and the, the stories keep coming because the stories are still there. This is still a problem for a lot of people who work for Amazon. It's one of those things I can imagine if Amazon was like, okay, we'll give you more time for bathroom breaks. It's like they're this sort of like animal wedged up against a wall. I'm not trying to defend Amazon here. I'm just sort of trying to, I guess, offer an explanation why they are denying that it's happening and then like <laughs> compounding the problem. And this warehouse in particular, what are some of the stories coming out of this warehouse of working conditions? So one of the most prominent problems with Amazon warehouses in general, but also with this specific warehouse, is uh, temperature control. That um, most of the warehouses do not have adequate temperature control, which means that in the summer it reaches temperatures over 100 degrees, um, and in the winter it is inadequately heated. So oftentimes Amazon has dealt with this problem not by investing money in um, air conditioning and heating units, but instead by having medics on call to deal with the health crises that this creates. So work to your drop, basically. Yeah, exactly. And of course, a lot of these workers are seasonal workers, gig workers on contract, and they don't have health benefits. Some warehouse workers are full-time employees, but Amazon notoriously relies heavily on contract workers that they do not have to provide health insurance benefits for. This is a, a you know a lightning rod moment, isn't it? Because the unionisation of this workplace could mean that this will be repeated elsewhere in other Amazon sites and, and elsewhere across America. Uh, how keenly fought has the battle over the unionisation of this site been? So Amazon has been notorious for union busting for a very long time. Right now, their primary tactic for preventing unionization is mostly just by surveillance. They create heat maps of their warehouses in order to show them if a lot of people are in the same space where they could be having conversations about uh, unionizing. And and why heat maps maps are not? cameras is there oh there are cameras too oh there's okay great (laughs) uh there are cameras too but their warehouses are enormous so i feel like heat maps are probably actually more efficient for that kind of surveillance so there have been many complaints that have been made to the national labor review board about people being fired for supporting unionization or for complaining about working conditions and a lot of times they, Amazon has been found at fault, but they are given minor fines. They, this is a huge company. So it's not like they care if they have to pay a, thousand, a couple thousand dollars each time that they illegally fire somebody. But another thing that they have been doing is offering $2,000 bonuses for people to quit if they support a union. So you want to unionize your workplace, here's $2,000 as a present, just leave. And of course, people take the money. And I think that one of the, the other things that isn't talked about enough when we're talking about the way that Amazon prevents unionization is that the turnover in these workplaces is enormous. Part of that is because uh, the work is exhausting. And there are injuries. There is a high number of seasonal workers and contract workers 
in comparison to uh, the ratio with full-time employees, and it's not well-paid. So it's really hard to unionize your workplace if there's a constant rotation of new people coming in. I think that just speaks to the courage of these workers as well, the fact that they are acutely risking their jobs if they're caught organising and they're resisting a sort of, uh, like, we'll pay you to leave. I can imagine for a lot of those workers that sum of money would make a, a material difference in the lives of themselves and their families. And so to stick at this job, which sounds like doesn't treat them particularly well, God, it's just, mm-hmm. it's remarkable. It's so courageous. Yes, it is. And because Amazon has been aggressive for so long, this is the first time that we're going to see what this can do. And so what's, um, what's changed? What's different this time? Um, well, there has definitely been a resurgence of unions in America workplace, right? So there has been a sort of strengthening of unions within America, which went out of, well, you know, it, for a lot of reasons, they were in decline for decades. Um, But in the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of different workplaces of a lot of different industries start to renew the union process. So I think that has something to do with it. Like it's just not seen as taboo. There was something like taboo about unions in America for a while. So I think that's part of it. I think also the pandemic is definitely part of it. Amazon was not adequately providing PPE to the employees. They were not informing their employees about risk that they were taking. If one of their coworkers had a positive test, other people that work for them were not told. They weren't given the opportunity to distance themselves. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And also just seeing Jeff Bezos just collect enormous wealth and profit off of mass death, I think also has a lot to do with why this is suddenly seen as something that is possible. Jess, so the film Nomadland sort of depicts the life of the gig worker, the itinerant gig worker in the United States economy, and they go into an Amazon fulfillment centre uh, and film in there. And I sort of wrote about it this week, this sort of odd sterility, the strangeness of those scenes, which uh, they're like a Potemkin village of consumer culture. Everything seems bright and shiny <laughs> yeah. and everyone's smiling. Has that also been a bit of a lightning rod for people who are going, hey, that's not what it's really like in there? You know, I think that it was very useful for Amazon to have this movie. Basically, it uses Amazon's sort of press materials and treats them as fact. Like, Amazon presents itself as this very family-like or, you know, you just do your job and then, you know, we'll support you and, and it's fine. And the movie just like bought it and and just presented that to the world without question and without confrontation. And I think that it was very useful to Amazon. I think there's a reason why they gave the filmmaker permission to use the logo and the uniform. Yeah, so there has been, since it was released, a sort of growing controversy. And again, kind of like Amazon's Twitter feed, it had a sort of unintentional effect of really revealing to people, actually, that all of this stuff is just PR. It, it, it's just propaganda. It, it's actually a kind of horrific place to work. 
I don't think that it's a surprise that my piece about the nomad land controversy is the one that sort of set them off because I think that they are frustrated that it wasn't as useful propaganda as they thought it was going to be. They seem to be going all out on the propaganda at the moment. I've been really enjoying the sort of forensic investigations to all these Twitter accounts popping up with like mm-hmm. profile pictures that have that's clearly just been AI. Yeah, someone's Googled yeah. like <laughs> ordinary guy dot JPEG <laughs> and like the and then it's like I'm just a, a happy dad and all the tweets are like, I love my job at Amazon and uh, I, they're just fulfillment bots. Yeah. It's like unions, <laughs> yeah. boo, I love Amazon. And it's like people who use Twitter know what Twitter users look like. Like just because you're jumping on here and trying to put out propaganda, like we see right through that. <laughs> so if this union well, gets together, do you have a sense of what their their first demands are going to be? I don't know that personally, but I mean, it has to be pay increase, right? And one of the things that Amazon always sort of talks about is that they pay their employees well because they, they pay above the minimum wage. So typically, a warehouse worker for Amazon will receive around $15 an hour to start. And in America, for working class jobs and jobs that are considered not to be ideal, $15 can seem like a lot because you have fast food workers and service workers and domestic workers working for way less than that, right? Because we don't, we have such a low federal minimum wage requirement in the United States. But actually, and Alex McGillis writes about this in his book about Amazon that came out this month, uh, Fulfillment, the work that Amazon workers are doing in these warehouses used to pay, you know, several decades ago, $30 an hour. So actually, they're being paid, you know, a third of what they should be for similar types of jobs. And those were union jobs. They came with full benefits. And they were jobs that people expected to work in for decades. Like there was job security in a lot of different ways. So Amazon is really trying to twist the truth about how much money they are actually sort of giving to their employees. Well, we're rooting for the workers to vote yes and to uh, join the union. When will we know about the outcome of the vote, Jess? Have you got any idea? People are saying hopefully by the end of the week, but also uh, these voting processes take so long and people are allowed to challenge and demand recounts and so on. So it might actually be a couple of weeks or so before we have like the final answer on whether the union is going to go Which through. is now just a fine American electoral tradition to, to <laughs> challenge the, the outcome of any vote. Good on you, Jessa. Great to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of your evening there in Baltimore. And thanks for being on the job. We'll check in with you again after we find out the result. Thank you. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Yeah, so we'll keep following that vote at Amazon, uh, however long it takes uh, for them to sort out whether they can become a unionised shop and, and follow up with Jessa when we find out more about that. So, mm. And if you are on Twitter, do keep your eyes peeled for those bots who are like, I'm just a regular mom <laughs> and I love Amazon. <laughs> hey, um, Francis, how are you? I didn't ask you at the, at the top of this show. 
Uh, not too bad. Uh, look, all of this, uh, what's been going on this year has been revelatory, as we've talked about. And I'm a bit like you. I just want to make sure that, that the, the focus isn't shifted by a change in the news cycle. We're living in such volatile times. And uh, as we saw in Queensland in the last week with uh, another outbreak of COVID-19, it can upend everything really quickly and the focus shifts away. So the structural change that we need to see happen, it's really vital that we don't lose focus on that amongst dealing with all the other shit that's coming at us. So, yeah, I'm, I feel kind of determined to make sure that I keep my end of the bargain up and, and uh, keep watch over these things as they unfold, that we don't just slip back into accepting uh, the, the structures as they are, the fact that women have been uh, locked out of opportunities that should be uh, available to them and available to men, uh, that all of those things that we talked about when we are at the height of uh, the issue itself aren't lost on mm. us. And I, I mean, I saw the, for instance, an example of what I'm talking about was this article written in the Australian Financial Review last week that shifted the focus away from the cultural uh, and uh, uh, the issues around power and sexism in the Parliament House and shifted it onto the one journalist or one of the journalists who's been the primary source of revealing the truth of what's gone on, Samantha Maiden, who I've a previous colleague of mine at the New Daily, uh, that's a perfect example of what we've got to push back against as this goes on. You know, suddenly she became the story, she became the problem. Questions about her character were raised in, in a way that was uh, vindictive and irrelevant, but just another reassertion of patriarchal power from a newspaper which is predominantly written by men and for men. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the wake of the allegations against Brittany Higgins, Brittany spoke up and said, hey, the press secretaries in Scott Morrison's office are backgrounding, which means sort of calling journalists and bad-mouthing essentially, a backgrounding journalists about my boyfriend. Like they're bad-mouthing my boyfriend and, and he is somehow the reason why I'm making these allegations. And it's easy to think that the same thing is happening here, you know, like the this is a journalist and I, I should be completely transparent here. Sam Maiden is a very close friend of mine. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if we've spoken about that before. But, yeah, so Sam is a very close friend of mine. But, um, yeah, it, it's pretty easy to look at this sort of what I would describe as a hit piece as coming from a government who is madly trying to deflect away from themselves. I think it was a pretty extraordinary moment when Scott Morrison lashed out at journalist Andrew Clennell in that press conference. talking about Yeah, he bared his fangs, didn't he? He showed his yeah. real face. The mask talk, dropped. Talk about, he was saying, you know, don't throw stones from glass houses, sort of implying that nobody is allowed to criticise the government if they've ever done something wrong, which is a super bizarre thing. And yeah, it seems like the government are taking that attitude towards its critics. On feeling determined, keeping the pressure on, not getting distracted by hit pieces on journalists or stories that are seeking to deflect attention and, and change the media cycle. We've, it's the 1st of April today when we were recording this and the parliament doesn't go back until the federal budget. So we've got about a six-week break now. The parliament doesn't see it and then parliament will return and the government are hoping that the news cycle then will be all about whatever they're going to announce in the budget. And so it's really important for you and I, Francis, and also for everybody listening to like really keep dr banging the drum on this issue and, and not letting it go away and not letting it get covered up by some sort of 
budget announcement. Well, you and I will make sure that doesn't happen on this podcast. But just on the things you're talking about there, Sally, what, what we saw a bit there was just how hard it is uh, and how resistant to change institutions and workplace cultures are. So even though the Prime Minister and others will uh, try and find the words that will get them out of a political spot by saying, I, I hear you, I'm listening, uh, the culture kicks in again when he's challenged by Clonell, for instance, and he bears his fangs and, and does the same as he's always done, which mm-hmm. is uh, obfuscate, blame, uh, play whataboutism games and basically undermine any real attempt to convince us that he's sincere about change. Derek Linsell is our next guest. He's someone I caught up with just a little while ago on this very issue because I'm fascinated by the idea of having an empathy coach, for instance, that somehow you can you can coach people to feel for others or that you can change an organisational culture in the way that uh, Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormick said, I will sit down for an hour or two and, and listen to an <laughs> expert and that'll fix it all. Just how hard is it to change cultures in institutions? And Derek knows about this. He's an organisational health expert. He's an expert in change. Changing cultures, work with organisations like the Salvation Army, uh, universities like ANU, University of Taz, University of New England. Uh, he's also the chaplain for the AFL umpires, amongst other things that he does. Uh, I, st- I talked to him about changing cultures, how difficult it is. Is there such a thing as an empathy coach? And also, of course, I asked him the classic question, what was your first job and what was your worst job? Derek, welcome to On The Job. Nice to see you again, Francis. First thing we always ask on this program is, first job that you ever had and the worst job that you've ever had. <laughs> what was the first job you ever had? Uh, the first job was at the age of nine and a half delivering papers. Uh, the delivered- timeless first job, the Absolutely. old paper round. Where was your paper round? It was in uh, Camberwell here in Victoria. Uh, delivering the Progress Press every Wednesday afternoon. So I'd come home from primary school and with my sister go and uh, deliver the Progress Press in Camberwell. What about the worst job you've ever had to do along the way? Uh, The worst job. It was probably when I worked for the Salvos, there was some uh, homes that I had to go into of people that were really struggling. And I don't have the strongest tummy in the world, Francis, which means that there was some odours and smells in some homes that had an effect upon me. That's probably some of the things. And when some of the the more marginalised people would offer me drinks of tea, which I would accept, but I would notice that the drink of the cup of tea probably was a little bit more dirtier than what I was normally used to. I could see you turning green just <laughs> from memory of it. Derek, you're in the business of changing work cultures and work yeah. culture's been in the news over the last few weeks and it's been to do with gender issues, power mm. uh, and abuse within the workplace. Yep. Let's start with the, the headline act, the empathy coach, which has become you know the catchphrase of 2021. Everyone seems to need one at the moment. Does a thing, such a thing exist and, and can such a thing work? Can you coach empathy? That's uh, a great question. Well, first and foremost, I, my hunch is that's actually being a little political. And I read those stories. It's actually about decency. You know, that's really, it's nothing to do with empathy. It's actually about what's decent. So, you know, can you teach someone decency? You probably just need to look him in the eye and say, that's out of line, lad. You know, that's unacceptable stuff. That would be the first thing. So let's the um, let's separate decency from empathy. Let's go into empathy, though, because the whole emotional intelligence has become huge since Daniel Goleman wrote his book 20 years ago now. So a lot of empathy is really about what is emotional intelligence. 
I think it's important to define too that there is a difference between sympathy and empathy. What's the difference? Yeah, sympathy is where you feel for someone. Empathy is where you feel with someone. So sympathy is a lot easier in some ways because it's like, you know, person's, you know, struggling. It's like, oh, shit, you know, that's, that's, you're really struggling there. Empathy is where you're actually able to touch your own sense of feeling to actually then communicate that sense of feeling almost uh, you're transferring that feeling. Now, that's incredibly powerful. So can you learn that? It takes a long period of time, but it's really dangerous if you get it right, by the way, because you can take advantage of people and so on. But it's, and why is that? Because it's really powerful if you're very good at it and learning to connect with people. We're seeing a lot of workplaces at the moment under enormous stress because of what's happened uh, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. A lot of workplaces have become rather disparate and separated and uh, people have reacted in different ways. Some people have actually thrived in yeah. working from home because their circumstance, whether it's their financial circumstance, their family circumstance and their work allows them to actually enjoy the solitude of it and have the and empower them to dip in and out of the outside world when they want. Other people have really struggled with it because they're not enjoying the same luxury of time and opportunity. How traumatised do you think workplaces have become and workers have become as a consequence of what we've gone through? I think we've underestimated how traumatised workplaces are. So I did a piece of work for a client um, late last year, Francis, of where the brief was, Derek, give me an idea how my executive team's going. And it wasn't extreme. So there was one end of uh, people saying, oh, this is fantastic, you know, I've got time now, I don't have to spend the hour in commute and I can get up and do some emails and then I can go to the gym. And so some people saying that was really good. The other extreme were people saying, get me out of here. So in that piece of work, one person was telling me the story, Derek, the person just up the road from me, one of the people living in that house just suicided recently. Now, I know my job well enough to know that when I'm listening to stories, there's a reason why someone's telling me that story. So that gives you an idea of the extremes of how that worked. But what I'm discovering now, Francis, is that this trauma is far more deeper and more subtle than actually what we're giving it credit for. In what way? So I'm amazed the amount of clients that I'm working with at the moment that say to me after I say, you know, how are you doing? They tell me, Derek, I'm tired. So I had a senior executive from an institution last week say, I generally tell you that in November, Derek, but I'm tired now. I had a CEO tell me last week, we were chatting about this, a CEO of a large organisation. She said, yeah, it's actually a bit like a Burns victim. I said, wow, that's powerful. Tell me what that means. She said, well, you know, you you go through burns and, you know, and then you've got all the dramatic and you've got to be healed and all that. But then once the healing starts to commence, you know, and you come out the other side, there's all the trauma you've got to deal with that. And she was saying, that's what I'm seeing amongst my people at the moment. This COVID thing is the trauma from that we don't fully understand and there's one other aspect to that that I would even, which taps into some of the cultural themes, Francis, and that is before COVID, the workplace was one of the last bastions of community. So what I mean by that is that 
Churches are breaking down. Political parties are breaking down. You know, footy clubs are breaking down. So where do people find community? We're social beings. So we found it in the workplace. That's why corporate responsibility and so on kicks in. But when COVID happened and we're all sent home and we get why we were sent home, so therefore what it meant for them, where do I find my community? And you add in the fact that people are working in insecure work, not knowing whether the JobKeeper program or has now disappeared and so the financial insecurity, which they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, exacerbates that in a, in a way we've not seen in a long time. And I would even go further, Francis, than the financial insecurity to the personal insecurity. So because we live in a world that is so dominated by consumerism now and we've lost the art of being still, we don't have the spiritual disciplines to know how to be present, to know how to still, to know how to listen to ourselves. So one of the things that I observed last year and I'm seeing it played out this year is that Because we don't have what I call the spiritual skills about being present and sensitive to self and listening to self, when we were told to go home because of the virus and the busyness of planes and meetings and constancy and so on, when the noise of that busyness stopped, all of a sudden we became really conscious of the noise of our own internal struggles and we didn't have the skills to know how to deal with that. I think that's one of the re- that's one of the huge observations of COVID for me. One of the reasons why we've seen increase in alcoholism and so on and so on because we use those things to dull the pain. So if we look at what's been going on in the last little while around organisational institutional cultures and what it means for workers. Obviously, what's been happening in Parliament House is been something of a lightning rod to talk about these issues. You've worked in big organisations and on issues of cultural change. How hard is it to shift a culture that's been baked in as hard as it seems to say in the Parliament House here in in Canberra? Is it it impossible? Is it too late? Uh, The answer is yes, you can, but it's almost impossible. Never, ever, ever underestimate that the most powerful influence in any organisation is its culture. And large organisations don't have souls. Individual people have soul. That's why cultures become so brutal. So, you know, when large organisations have got to do downsizing, they use language like, oh, we've got to cut heads, there's blood on the floor, there's, you know, we've got to take people out. That's all psychopathic language. And we apply that to cultures. So never underestimate the power of culture. Can you change culture? Yes, but you've got to be incredibly intentional about it. You've got to know what it is. You've got to be honest about that. And my experience is you've got to be able to help people understand those cultures. And what happens with cultures is when someone joins a particular organisation, within six to eight weeks, because we're social creatures, If we want to belong within this culture, we are taking on the behaviours of what that culture is. So when you actually come and look to try and change it, you're trying to change often the behaviours of the people there. And a key theme in any change work, the key theme that most institutions do not get, and that is that all change is personal, 
all change is emotional. So all change is personal, all change is emotional. You have to change people one by one, win hearts and minds. Is that what you're saying? That's a lot of work. It means that when you start bringing about change, that the most difficult ones that often to bring about that change is because all of a sudden it starts to impact the way they live their life. Do I have a job? Can I do this new IT program? Can I, all of those things. So it's therefore impacting them and their behaviours are baked in. And often with long-term organisations, they don't even see, they they don't see the wood for the trees because this is how they survive. They get it. They understand it. That's their language, their behaviours, their humour. That's what's going on, of course, in Parliament House. This stuff has been acceptable for years and years and years. And my hunch is for many, they're only kind of waking up and now going, wow, I didn't even realise this was wrong because they're so immersed in it. That's why culture is so powerful. How do you change it then? If you can change it, you said there's a narrow path to change, say particularly on the issue of gender equity because clearly it's now an issue that people yep. can't shy away from. No. It has. It's now an issue that's kind of come at a political cost if people don't act upon it. So is it, in yep. a sense, political self-interest that will maybe be the catalyst for change? Is it, Even if it's as sort of cynical as that, can that work? Well, first are the principle in change, and that is that change only happens in crisis. So the fact that there is a crisis going on at the moment will be the catalyst for change. Let's hope that the crisis stays so that that change actually gets baked in, that it doesn't just kind of like, uh, you know, we just play it over, if you like, so that um, we kind of think we've done something. And that's what a lot of politicians or senior people try and do. They cover it up. But crisis is a key factor for change. What else has then got to do is that leadership must change. It's got to flow from that top. So certainly those in positional power, they must change the way they behave. But any change program, you've also got to understand who are the influencers. And the influencers aren't always those in positional power. So you've got to understand where the influential power is and begin to influence them to bring about behaviour. Can you give us an example of that sort of influential power you're talking about that might be important to generating change? Oh, countless. Um, CEO stands up in front of all his staff or her staff and says, we've got to make this change for whatever reason. You've got a fellow that's been in accounts for 25 years or you've got someone in HR for whatever and walks out and says, I ain't doing that. And the other people around, they will hear that. No, I ain't doing that. And so, you know, they just block it and you don't even know that they've been blocked because the boss has said, this is where we're going, this is where we're going. But remember, it's about human beings. It's about behavior. Coming back to your point, it's about a lot of its self-interest. And unless you get those blockers that can be anywhere in an institution, an organization, they will do you over every time. The other thing about change, by the way, is that often institutions communicate change because communication, communication, communication is such a key. Institutions communicate change at a logical and institutional and functional perspective. Makes sense. We've got to change because our, our government funding's been cut or our prices have dropped or whatever. That all makes sense. How do people hear it? They hear it as personal and emotional. 
And so unless you actually get that principle in change, it'll never work. Derek, what about the role of empowering workers? Obviously, uh, as a unionist, we believe that unions are a key to giving uh, workers a voice, a say, some, in, some agency in their workplace, some ability to actually get uh, better outcomes for them and their families, safer workplaces, and I guess a greater sense of fulfilment within work because you know, you've, you've got skin in the game. You feel like you're a valued part of, the, of an organisation that you're working for. You've got a voice. Increasingly, that seems to be disappearing from workplaces because work is insecure, it's casualised, workers don't have any entitlement and they're simply just uh, mechanisms of production. How important is it for workers to have that agency? It is unbelievably important, Francis. So I did a piece of work recently for a large institution working with them on what's their purpose. So they gave us some frameworks and so on. I'm now saying to this, we have to go to the people to hear their purpose. And because I actually think what's happened in that space is lots of organisations talking about purpose, but they're missing it because it's just becoming some pithy purpose statement. What people are now looking for is meaning. They have to find meaning in the work. It's a key spiritual and emotional theme is to find meaning in work. So it's important that in that particular client, I or my firm is going to the people, listening to, tell me what, what's really important for you in that. The other word you used in there is voice. I can't express to you how important it is that people's voices are heard, whether that be in a personal situation or whether that be in a corporate situation. And we're seeing in the States, for instance, that unionism is no longer demonised, but it's actually being promoted by the president correct, who says correct. that unionised jobs, good, stable unionised jobs is the key to America's future prosperity, which is a, the reverse of 40 years of trickle-down trickle economics from, from the Reagan era and beyond. We will never underestimate how damaging the Reagan stuff was. And I was interested to read an economist saying that under Biden, uh, it's almost we're seeing the end of Reaganomics for the very first time. Um, but considering that Clinton ran with Reaganomics and even Obama ran with Reaganomics, Biden's the first to really challenge that. And um, stuff in the UK is, is also still as bad around not listening to the people on the ground. Derek, great to get your insights. Thank you for being here with us on the job and we'll speak to you soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Francis. On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. Derek Linsell there, uh, CEO and founder of uh, Apricots uh, Consulting, organisational health expert with some really strong things to say about just how hard it is to change institutional cultures and how it has to be led from the top. Are we being led from the top at the moment, Sally? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I'll take that as a big fat no! No, we're not. But um, isn't it funny how... Isn't it funny how many empathy coaches <laughs> are being sort of unleashed onto various members of the government? It's pretty unusual. You know, it's pretty unusual. The to only, have- it's only employment that they're growing at the moment is for empathy coaches. Oh, <laughs> it's kind of like a new job that we've only heard of recently because so many members of our parliament supposedly need help understanding that, like, you shouldn't take photos up women's clothes when they're bending over or <sighs> you shouldn't call... People are lying cow and, you know, some really complicated stuff they need some expert support with. Gee, we've got a lot of work to do. <sighs> Deep breath, everybody. Thank you very much, Sally. Good to have you back on the job. Uh, we'll follow you with interest on uh, on the Twitters, uh, at Sally Rugg. 
Are you underscoring at Sally underscoring? No underscores. No underscores. Just pure, <laughs> pure gold at Sally Rogue. Don't forget to give us a rating on your platform, whichever platform you're listening to us. It helps people find us and uh, keep uh, listening to On The Job. We'll catch you again next week. Bye-bye, Sal. Bye.